Well, welcome everyone to evening worship. We're glad that you're here with us. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, which says, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let us pray. Father, you have called us to worship, and we respond now saying, Love so wondrous, so amazing, so divine demands our souls, our lives, our alls. We seek your presence that we might experience fullness of joy. So receive our worship during this hour, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 457, Come Thou Fount. be seated. If you'll look in your order of worship, you'll find now that we have a corporate confession of sin, followed by a time of silent confession of sin and prayer, and I'll talk more about that during the assurance of pardon, but I want to, what I want to encourage you to do uh, after we pray this corporate confession, take a few moments, just anything that's weighing on your hearts, bring it to the Lord. Uh, your sins, first and foremost, just keeping accounts, close, short accounts with God, but also anyone else you feel is in need now or anything you feel the need to pray for, we're just going to afford a few moments of silence 
uh, to encourage our church in a time of prayer. So if you would join me in the corporate confession of sin, let us pray together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have wandered and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things that we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us, sinners. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father, we want to thank you tonight for your grace. Thank you for this time where we can just present ourselves before you and be present in your presence. Um, You are always with us. And there's nowhere that we can flee to escape your presence. But we need to be mindful and conscious of the fact um, that you're here with us. You've summoned us to this place. You've called us to worship. We've confessed our sins before you and humbled ourselves and We believe and know now uh, that we have your full attention and that you desire yourself to hear the desires of our hearts. So the needs that your people have brought before you tonight, whether they're needs in physical healing and strength and comfort, needs for loved ones who are lost or hurting or struggling, needs for spiritual help, needs for your mercy and compassion, to be near to them, and all these needs that are in accordance with your will. Father, we pray that you would hear us, that you would answer us, and that you would bless us as we bless you this night. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been in a time of corporate confession of sin and silent confession of sin gradually these last few weeks, and I wanted to say a word about that because... Um, when I went to my previous church, I had never been in a church that practiced corporate and silent confession of sin before. And I questioned it at first as, you know, what is the purpose of doing this week in and week out? And, you know, people will even ask questions like, why do we need to keep confessing our sins if we already know that we're forgiven? And the long and short of that is, um, God knows our sins We know our sins. This is to keep close accounts with the Lord. Um, And I had, there was a gentleman who joined my previous church who said to me, 
that the thing that drew him to the church was it was the first church he had ever been to that regularly, corporately confessed its sin, which is something the Scriptures constantly calling us to do, confess our sins to God, to confess our sins to one another. So that's good. And the second thing that's good, you could say even better in a way, is if you're anything like me, you need to hear over and over again that you are forgiven. Uh, Because God forgives us, but sometimes we say we can't forgive ourselves. Or as David said in Psalm 51, his guilt was ever before him. We can feel that way. And part of the purpose of, of why the church ordains its ministers, why presbyteries ordain their ministers is so that a minister can stand as a representative of Jesus Christ and declare his authoritative word to you. It's not authoritative because it's me, but because I've been commissioned to give you what is his, to give you uh, his word. And uh, Martin Luther famously said, someone asked him, Dr. Luther, why do you preach the gospel every week? And his answer was, because you forget it every week. And that's why I love the corporate confession of sin and assurance of pardon because we need to be reminded week in and week out, really day in and day out. We don't need to be reminded we're sinners as much as we need to be reminded that we're forgiven sinners. So your assurance of pardon tonight comes from Romans 8 and verse 1. It's very simple. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is there a little bit of condemnation? Is there some condemnation? A small level of condemnation? No, he says, There's no condemnation because Jesus Christ has taken the condemnation we deserve. Therefore, if you're resting and trusting in Christ, as he's offered to you in the gospel, there is no condemnation for you. Now let's celebrate that as we receive God's tithes and our offerings. We're also going to sing hymn number 529, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. And the goal of all of this is that we would be lost in wonder, love, and praise. Let's sing together as the offering is collected.
Our scripture reading tonight comes from the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. Romans 6, we'll be reading verses 17 and 18. Before I read it, let us pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Spiritually, we would be walking around in abject, absolute darkness were it not for the light that this word shines. Help us to see that light and to see that truth and to let it lead us into joy everlasting. Shepherd your people through the reading and the preaching of your word, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 6, verses 17 through 18. Hear God's word. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And this ends the reading of God's Word. So tonight I'm starting a series of sermons in the evenings this month, and it will continue. We're going to, Matt and I are going to be alternating months, but I'll continue this past this month, uh, that I'm calling Dealing with Spiritual Slumps. And the basic idea is that there are times in our lives when, in our Christian experience, we feel like we're on the mountaintop, or we're, or maybe you've never felt like you're on the mountaintop, but at least you're a little higher up than at other times. And then there are times when you feel like you're down in the valley. And I think this is something good to think about uh, because, A, you may be one of those people who's in a valley right now and you need some encouragement. Or B, you may be somebody who's up on the mountaintop, but you're going to end up in a valley and you'll need encouragement then. So the outline of the series is based on Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression... It's Causes and Cures. So that book was extremely helpful to me and has continued to be extremely helpful to me, um, but was particularly in a time when I really needed it in my Christian life. And so I'm not re-preaching his sermons. What, more like what I'm doing is I'm using his sermon series as an outline for how to present uh, some modern-day applications to things that he was you know, saying 60 years ago. So Lloyd-Jones says... That one of the reasons we go through slumps, or what he called spiritual depression, is that our spiritual life gets out of balance. You probably know what it's like when you get a flat tire. Right? You're driving down the road, everything's smooth, and then all of a sudden it's bump, 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 because one of those tires is out of balance. And that can happen to us spiritually. Aspects of our souls can get out of proportion, out of balance, can become flat in comparison to the others. And Lloyd-Jones would call that spiritual imbalance. So that's what we're talking about tonight, spiritual imbalance. So three points. Let's talk about what spiritual balance is, how we become spiritually imbalanced, and how we can find spiritual balance. Number one, what spiritual balance is. Well, the first thing to note in our passage, in verse 17, is that Paul says we all once were slaves of sin. And of course we throw the word sin around a lot. It can become part of the furniture where you don't really take the time to think about what it means. But in its, at its most basic, it's meaning uh, in the Greek, it's a word that means to miss the mark. 
It's an archery term. You pull back the bow, you shoot, and you miss the target. That's the, the word picture Paul uses to describe sin. If the arrow is going to hit the mark, you need to have good aim. That's one thing. Also, your sights need to be balanced, and the arrow that you're shooting needs to be balanced. You get out of balance, you don't hit the mark. Now, Thomas Aquinas famously said that beauty occurs at the intersection of three things. Integritas, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Latin, never mind. Wholeness, harmony, and splendor, he said. When wholeness, harmony, and splendor come together, that's when you get beauty. That's when you're hitting the mark, so to speak. Robert Barron uh, describes this, he illustrates this when he uses the example of a golf swing. I am not a golfer, I have watched plenty of golf, but I know when is a golf swing working? It's when all the parts of the body are working together in harmony with all of that energy to focus on that one little focal point that is that golf ball and smack. And, you know, if you've ever swung a baseball bat and hit a ball, you know what it feels like when you get that smooth, harmonious, perfect swing and it perfectly hits the ball. He used another illustration of John Madden, the late, great football announcer, talking about a sweaty, muddy, beat-up, bedraggled defensive lineman. He looked at him, blood on his knuckles, and he said, now there's a beauty. What did he mean by that? How can you call a beat-up, bedraggled, bloody offensive lineman, or defensive lineman, beautiful? Well, Barron says what Madden meant by that was there was a man who during this game had devoted everything he had and everything he was to one purpose, and that was playing football. All of his energy, all of his mind, all of his heart, all of his will, all of his body was all devoted to this one purpose. And when someone does that, it's a beautiful thing. That's one of the reasons we're so, I think, that we're so obsessed with sports is because we love to see greatness. And it's one area where greatness is on display for you to actually watch. Uh, You know, greatness happens in offices and boardrooms too, but we don't get to watch it. On the court, on the field, we do. And so when you see people who have a definite aim and they've worked uh, to hone their skills and their bodies and their minds in order to accomplish that aim, when all that works together in harmony, that's when you get beauty. You could think about an orchestra working together. All the different parts of the orchestra are all playing with the aim of producing this one singular song. And when it comes together, it's beautiful, and when it doesn't, it's a disaster. But back to our passage. When Paul says that we were once slaves of sin, but are now slaves of righteousness... He's saying, sinners' lives are constantly missing the mark of what they were made for. We're out of balance. Our aims are off. But when we become slaves of righteousness, we get a new aim. Uh, or another way of putting it, everything in our lives is meant to point toward the aim of righteousness. That's our goal. But not just righteousness in the abstract. When Paul talks about righteousness in Romans, he's usually if not always, talking about the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed God in our behalf as our substitute and then died the death of a a substitute, a sinner, in our place even though he was without sin. And now as we trust in him, he offers us his own righteousness credited to us so that when we stand before the Father, we're completely accepted. There's no condemnation for us because of what Jesus has done for us. So Paul wants us to orient our lives around this fact of the imputed righteousness of Christ. 
that we stand accepted and beloved before God because of what Christ has done for us. And so he wants our lives, you could say, to become like that defensive lineman. It's not that we're beautiful because of our beauty. It's that we become beautiful because of what Christ has done for us and now that we're orienting our lives around what Christ has done for for us. We're making that the center. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about spiritual balance. Here's the second point. How we become imbalanced. So this is verse 17, again in our passage. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So notice three things Paul says about the Romans here. He says they have become, one, obedient. Two, obedient from the heart. Three, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were to which they were committed. So the classic Christian understanding of the soul is that our souls consist of three distinct parts working together as a whole, in unity. Uh, The classic work on this, uh, most modern work on this, is Jonathan Edwards' book, A Treatise Concerning the Religious Affections. And he described the mind, so the three parts of us. First, the mind, the part of us that thinks, that reasons, Second, the will, the part of us that chooses, the part of us that says, I like this, I don't like that. I will do this, I won't do that. And then finally, the affections. Uh, That's the part of us, it's, it's like the will worked up a notch, several notches. It's when like becomes love, when dislike becomes hatred. The affections are our loves, our joys. You could say our emotions, but... Uh, reform thinkers have tended to shy away from that phrase just because it's loaded with so much freight because of, of modern psychology and the like. But re- regardless, the mind, the will, and the affections. So tie that back to our passage. In Lloyd-Jones' sermon on this passage, he, he called his sermon the mind, the will, and the heart, and he points out how this connects to what Paul is saying about them. The Romans had become obedient. That's the will. That's choosing. That's doing. They had become obedient from the heart, That's the affections. That's the center of everything. That's who you are at your most basic level, what you love. And then finally, they'd become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching delivered to them. Standard of teaching, that's doctrine. That's the mind. That's correct thinking based on God's word. So God originally created us so that our minds, our wills, and our affections, our soul, it would be like that golf swing. It would be like that defensive lineman. It would be like that orchestra. All would be working together in a perfect dance, in perfect harmony. He wanted us to be captivated by God with our minds, to desire to obey God, and to love Him. Mind, will, affections. But sin has knocked us off course. So what happens is, we all have our own temperaments. Personalities, it's been called in modern times. uh, And some of us tend to gravitate more toward one than the other. Some of you gravitate toward the life of the mind. You're thinkers. Some of you gravitate toward the will. You're doers. Some of you gravitate toward the affections. You're criers. Or not just criers. Um, but you're emotional, right? You're emotional. It, you know, it's, it's funny, this even works out on the, on the church level. as whole. like you look at a Presbyterian church versus a Baptist church versus a Pentecostal church. Same thing. Who, what are the Presbyterians? Go ahead and tell me mind, we're, we're generally thinkers. 
what would you say, say the Baptists generally are? And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to stereotype or hurt anyone's feelings here. I promise. I love Baptists. Um, what are they? Doers. Right? The will. The altar call. And what would you say the Pentecostals are? The emotions. Right? They, see, we all, that, we're out of balance because of sin. That applies on church level. It applies on individual levels. You know, I knew someone, I had a church member, uh, previous church, who used to tell me, I, I would talk about the emotions, and he would always, always predictably say to me, you can't trust the emotions. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And I'm saying, but how do, how do you trust that statement? Your mind, right? Well, total depravity, the Christian doctrine of total depravity, reform doctrine, teaches that every bit of us has been affected by the fall. Our minds, our wills, and our affections. Not, one is not more trustworthy than the other. They're all, all fallen. The point is trying to get them all back in sync so that they're all back working properly. Um, in Lloyd-Jones' sermon, he's calling for our minds, our wills, and affections to be working together in harmony. But it's interesting. That's why I bring it up. If you read his sermon, he's actually putting uh, primacy on the mind because he was a doctor. He was a thinker. That's what he was a doctor before he became a preacher. And he's quite a thinker as a preacher, too. His sermons were usually an hour to an hour and ten minutes. Um, I don't think I could get away with that yet. <laughs> we'll see, though. Tonight might be a test. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So Lloyd-Jones said in that sermon, the heart is never to be approached directly. And what he meant by that was, he believed you should, the preacher should go to the mind in order to get to the heart. You try to move people with knowledge rather than with, you know, emotion or stories or sappy, sentimental things and the like. He also said, the heart is always influenced through the understanding. The mind, then the heart, then the will. <laughs> you know, what he was concerned about, he's displaying his bias there, though, because Lloyd-Jones, if, you, if you've ever read his stuff or listened to his stuff, one of his primary concerns in his day, you know, going back to the 40s, 50s, and 60s, was he was concerned about preachers who gave altar calls that attacked the will in almost a hypnotic way. You know, there's almost a hypnosis involved to it. They were attacking the will. He was also concerned about the emotionalism that was rampant in the charismatic movement, which, which was rising into prominence during his day. So he was reminding people, you can't live on emotion and will. You need to know the scriptures. You need to have right doctrine. He was a thinker. He puts most of his emphasis on the life of the mind. Then you take, I mentioned Robert Barron uh, earlier, who you know, is quite a theologian. He makes the argument that religion should start with the heart, with the affections, with the emotions, with, you could call it the imagination, or in the guts, however you want to say it, the, that deep down, deepest part of us. So he tells the story of how he became serious about his faith after going to a service at the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. And he looked up at the beauty of the rose window. And just that window did something to him. It changed him on the spot. He knew he had to change just because of that beauty that he beheld. And so he says, think about the Christian faith like a boy learning to play baseball. You don't start with the mind. You don't take your three-year-old, four-year-old boy or girl and sit down and say, son, daughter, okay, here's how we're going to learn about baseball. I'm going to teach you about the infield fly rule. That's step one. And the kid's going to be like, wow! No. Instead, he says, you take them, you let them slide into the bag, roll around in the dirt, feel the grass, you put a baseball in their hand, and a mitt on their hand, you let them feel the leather, you let them hold that smooth wood bat in their hands. And he says, that's what makes you fall in love with the game. 
And then it's after you fall in love with the game uh, that you want to learn the rules because of that love, because of that love driving you to care. So he says you start with the heart. Well, then you have moralistic teachers who talk about the will. They always want to start with the will. I know some of you grew up with religion that was all about behavior. It was all about following the rules. It was about not playing cards and not dancing and all that sort of thing. It was about uh, altar calls while the last stanza of Just As I Am Without One Plea is playing 87 times over and over again until the next person comes forward. It's about doing. You sign a church covenant promising that you won't smoke or dance, you know, that sort of thing. And you know, moralism is making, believe it or not, this, we live in a really interesting time when moralism is actually making a rebound in our culture. And you look at it and you say, this world's so lawless, it's so immoral, it's so terrible. But man, what is self-help? Self-help is everywhere, it's huge, and all it is is moralism. It's about becoming a better person, becoming all that you were meant to be, fulfilling your destiny, that sort of thing. TED Talks, self-help books, psychology, they're all teaching behaviorism. Jordan Peterson is the easiest example to give of this, and, and I enjoy Jordan Peterson uh, and his teaching, and he's helped me. If you hear me refer to him, it's because he's actually helped me in my life. Uh, and, you know, his first, it's just amazing what he's doing right now. You know, his mantra, that, he has several that became famous, but one was clean your room. It's like he stands up in an auditorium with 5,000 young men there, and he says, clean your room, take some responsibility, put a heavy burden on your back and carry it. And all these young men are like, yes! Yes, we need something to do. The world's not giving them anything to do. There's no great war to fight now. Give us purpose. And so Peterson's first book, the subtitle was 12 Rules for Life. And it, they were things like stand up straight with your shoulders back. Uh, like if you see a stray cat walking, stop to pet it. Uh, and then he wrote another book. And guess what it was called? Or it's subtitled. Twelve more rules for life. It's just more and more and more rules. It never ends. You know, Chesterton said, if man won't live by the Ten Commandments, he'll live by 10,000 commandments. Because we don't know what to do with our lives. Our aims are off. We don't know what we're doing. So Paul says, you know, while we all probably gravitate, and this is what I'm getting at with you, I want you to think about this. You probably gravitate toward one or two of the three, mind, will, heart, more than the others or other. And we need to be aware of this. We need to know our temperament because our temperament, that our soul, is what's getting out of balance. So Paul says, we obey from the heart. We obey from the heart based on understanding the teachings of Scripture. That's the proper order. All three, mind, will, heart, working together in harmony and balance. Lloyd-Jones says the Christian position is the three. The three together, the three at the same time, the three always. Otherwise, we're going to be in balance. We're going to be driving around with a flat tire in our soul, so to speak. So here's the question. If you have a sense that you've been knocked out of balance, if you have a flat tire, how do you air it up? How do you find balance? So if our minds, hearts, and wills are meant to be working together in harmony... That means we have to make sure that we pay attention to all three and work to keep them in balance. If you're a thinker and you're feeling flat, have you thought about the fact you might need to do something other than think? Right? I have a friend, and I don't think he would mind me saying this, who self-confesses you know, he overthinks everything. And you know how he tries to solve the problem of his overthinking? 
He thinks about it, right? And he overthinks about it, and he overthinks about it, and so the cycle never ends. And he, he said he realized he had to do something else. There were times when he just needed to shut his mind off and paint or draw or look at a sunset, see something beautiful just to get him out of his own head. But some of us, you know, we're not thinkers. We're heart people, and, and we live on emotions, and we want to come to church and feel good every week, and we feel like if we don't leave uplifted and encouraged and feeling good that we're missing out or something's wrong with us. Well, maybe you need to do something other than feel. Maybe you actually need to read a difficult book and challenge yourself. Uh, maybe you need to do something that will actually challenge your will. Do something difficult. Make a change in your life that you need to change. And, and of course, some of us are will people. You, know, you love rules. You love lists. You love to obey. It wouldn't hurt to read something. It wouldn't hurt to read a moving story, to, to watch a moving movie, to, to go to the scriptures even and say, I'm not just going here to get orders for how I'm supposed to live. I'm coming here to behold the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and let it move me, right? Let it move me, let it, or let it cause me to think. Now, how this works, um, I'm going to use three examples. One is from my own life. Um, I am not putting myself on par with the other two men who I'm going to use as examples, not nearly, because they're Thomas Aquinas and Blaise Pascal, and they were both geniuses. But I am a thinker. Um, I'm an overthinker, and an overthinker, and an overthinker. And I like to think. I enjoy it, even though it's to my detriment at times, because I can drive myself crazy. But I, I've told this story many times over the years, because it had a big impact on my life, through the, God's work, through a very wise man, and uh, so I took an elective class in seminary on John Owen. Had to read something like 1,300 pages of John Owen in one semester. For those of you who do not know, John Owen wrote sentences that were longer than my paragraphs. Uh, this man wrote dense, dense books that are very hard to read. But if you take the time and put in the willpower to read them, you will get a lot from them. And I did. I did. But I also found that my skull was about to crack. My brain was just hurting at the end of that semester. That was on top of all my other studies. And so I went to, uh, I was blessed to have a, uh, the last seminary course he taught, to my knowledge, was Knox Chamblin, teaching a class on the letters of, of John, Johannine literature it was called. And I went to Dr. Chamblin after class one day, and I said, Dr. Chamblin, my brain hurts. I'm tired. I have read so much this semester. I don't even feel like reading the scriptures. What should I do? I'm sure he loved that question. But I think he'd been asked it before. And he gave me a prescription. He said, I want you to go to the library and get two books. The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And I'm thinking, so you're telling me I need to read more. Well, that's exactly the answer. When I read those books, and you know what I found? I'd been reading the about the glory of Christ and John Owen and been feeling flat. But then I saw Aslan laying down his life you know, for one of the Pevensey kids, and it just melted me. And I was never the same again. And, and that's what opened up my love for actually the life of the imagination and the heart, not just the life of the mind. Another one, uh, I love the story of Thomas Aquinas. You know, he was the great doctor of the Roman Catholic Church. He was a thinker who came to realize that the will was equally, equally as important as the mind, the will and the heart, really. Near the end of his life, he had some great experience, some 
like just, he never said what it was. He wouldn't say. It was like too holy almost to him to say what it was, like Paul being caught up to the heavens. But he had this experience of the presence of God that, that changed him, and he stopped writing. And someone came up to him one day and said, you know, Dr. Aquinas, when are you going to write again? And Aquinas said, I've experienced things now that make my writings look like straw. And he never wrote again. And someone came to him one day and said, Dr. Aquinas, how do you become a saint? And Aquinas' answer was, will it? The great student had learned the importance of experience, of the heart, of the will. And then lastly, um, another example, this was Blaise Pascal. I love his story. He was a brilliant mathematician and a devoted Christian. And he had an experience of the presence of God in November of 1654. It was so profound, he wrote a journal entry of it, and he had it sewn into his jacket so that it would all, could never be taken away from him. And this is what he sewed into his jacket. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November, from about half past ten at night until about half past midnight, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Joy, 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 tears of joy. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and the one that you sent Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. So he was a thinker who learned the joy of the learned joy in his heart. The only way that we can get spiritual balance is through becoming servants of Jesus Christ, as Paul puts it. It's through knowing, attaching our wills, and binding our hearts to the fact that we are right with God through Jesus Christ's work on our behalf. That's what engages the mind, empowers the will, and enlivens the affections. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the Word, the Logos. And he's meant to be studied. Words are meant to be studied, listened to, heard, studied. He's the Lord. He's meant to obey. He's meant to, we're mean, he means for us to engage our wills to Him. And He's also the God who is love. He is love incarnate. He's the God who loves us and who commands that we love him in return. He engages our hearts and our affections. He's everything our minds, hearts, and wills need to captivate us. And if there's anything I'm sure of after, you know, my 22 years studying the scriptures, praying, seeking after God, it is that the more I learn about Jesus, the more I learn I don't know. The more... The less captivated I am, I realize there's so much more that could be captivating me if I'll just engage my mind, my will, and my heart to do so. And that's what God's calling us to do tonight. Lloyd-Jones said, The gospel can satisfy a man's mind completely, occupy and move his heart entirely, and lead to a complete action in the realm of the will. Mind, heart, will. will. After listening, if you... Feel like you're imbalanced, like there's some part there that's missing. There's some tire that's flat. The call is 
You've seen Jesus Christ. He's the only place to get air. He's the only ultimate place to get air. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for uh, that you've given us a Savior, your Son, who is not just a textbook, but who's also not just a motivational speaker or a storyteller, but he's everything wrapped into one. He's so great and so grand. The apostle says that if everything were to be written about him that he did during his life, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it. He's an endless source of wonder, delight, and study. But he's also a teacher and a preacher, and he's our Lord, and he's meant to captivate our wills so that we can have purpose for our lives and aim our purpose around something. But also, he's meant to ravish and enliven and bring joy to our hearts. So, Father, I pray tonight as we leave this place that you would bind our wondering hearts to thee, uh, that you would give us curious minds, that you would give us wills that desire to be obedient, that you would give us hearts that are eager to be moved at Christ's tenderness and at his love for us. As I said earlier, simply that we would be lost in wonder, love, and praise. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn, which is number 648, My Jesus, I Love Thee.
Now leave with God's blessing. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you all. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.